2: Even if you're not Richard III-minded, it has to be something to think that out there, somebody has found the remains of a king and that next week we're going to bury him properly, with dignity.
3: That was Phil Stone, chairman of the Richard III Society, talking about the importance of Richard's discovery and reburial.
0: As I started decoding it, then I realised I'd got something important. But it was a couple of years later before I really realised... I think, the prominence of this find when I heard about Richard III.
3: And that was Alexandra Buckle on her discovery of a manuscript that has been key in shaping the nature of the reinterment ceremony of Richard III. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our third podcast of March 2015, I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Just over two years after they were discovered beneath a Leicester car park, the remains of Richard III are to be reburied in the city's cathedral next Thursday. In recognition of that, we've decided to make this week's episode a Richard III special. The reburial next week will represent probably the final chapter in a saga that's taken in debates about where his skeleton should be reinterred, what the discovery actually means for history, and whether the bones were even those of the king at all. Our reviews editor, Matt Elton, has spoken to two people with a close connection to the story. Historian Alexandra Buckle's research helped inform the nature of the reburial service, and we'll hear from her later on. But first, however, Matt spoke to Dr Phil Stone, the chairman of the Richard III Society, to discover his thoughts on a momentous occasion
4: for the last Plantagenet king. It must be quite an exciting time to be part of the Richard III Society.
2: I would like to think so. Um, It certainly is at my level of the Society. Um, No, let's be serious. It must be one of the greatest events that the Society has ever known. I'm not quite the greatest because I still say that uh, the actual finding of the King comes first. But uh, no, next week is going to be Quite a week, you know. There are all these services. There's the, you know, the commemorations, the actual interment itself, and the society is doing a number of events of its own, which uh, will all add into the mix. I think it's going to be uh, very special. What do you hope to see from the reburial service itself? I would like to think that. Although it's a term I don't particularly like, there will be a sense of closure in that um, the king's remains have been found and that they have been respectfully and honourably buried and that the king has been given what he didn't get in 1485. Um, it will also be a sense of i 'd like to think on certainly on behalf of people like the Looking for Richard Project team and the society, and we're all very closely linked of course um, that we you know it's almost the end of a job well done. The society will continue beyond the uh, reinterment because uh, i we were set up as a h- historical research society with the intention of looking at the Evidence that surrounds the king, um, so that we can s- say research the life and times, and please heaven that we can uh, prove that Richard was not the nasty uh, monster that has been made out by some of the uh, the writers in the past, like Shakespeare, for instance. Wonderful play, but not true history. So we will continue with that. That's not a problem. But uh, no, I I think next week is going to give us a sense of, uh, well, we found him. We've now got him safely buried. We can look upon the job as being complete in that sense. But it's the start of a new phase of post-Ricardian history. What do you think this whole story has meant to the British public? That is an interesting question uh, because uh, I I find it difficult to answer this in a sense because I'm so closely linked to uh, the situation. Uh, But when you look in the press, you do see that there is an awful lot about it, press and the media, I should say. Um, And I've spoken with the foreign press, Um, in London and uh, there is a great deal of interest outside and clearly you would expect members of the various societies and organisations that are pro-Ricardian to be highly excited and interested but it's really quite amazing how all of this has in a way captured the public imagination Um, some of it for better and some of it for worse but I like to think that the fact that it has been so very public, maybe there are a few more people out there who are now thinking about Richard uh, and that instead of uh, you know, going around saying, well, I remember being taught that it was the devil incarnate and uh, what is all this fuss about? Is there something about him? Perhaps we better read and uh, look into it and see whether... Yes, whether it's all hype or there is some substance. Who knows? That's an interesting point, actually, because when
4: I spoke to you just after the discovery was confirmed, you said that you hoped the publicity would open up the debate about Richard and his character. Indeed, yes. How, how do you think this has happened? Kind of in what ways has this happened?
2: Well, certainly anybody who has had half an eye and half an ear open on any of this, they will have seen that the the media are... Certainly, uh, the media have become very excited, especially about the fact that there's going to be a reburial in the next week or so. Getting it in the public eye. Um, And if you look at some of the comments that come back, uh, clearly people are interested. Yes, there's still a lot of people out there who are not going to take on board any changes to their their views, but then you know, that applies to a lot of us. Some, some of us, especially as we get older, get terribly hidebound in our outlook. But uh, I think, I hope I'm not being naive. I think I may have said that to you before as well. I hope I'm not being naive, but I do think that there is a certain degree of um, people beginning to take a more enlightened view, I nobody is ever going to say that Richard was perfect, at least I hope they're not, because you know he was a man like the rest of us. but I would like it to be that people will at least suggest and believe that there are doubts. We never know for certainty the answer to all the questions, but we now know a lot more about him than we did. And certainly some of the Shakespearean stories, the Shakespearean myths, have been debunked by the finding of Richard's skeleton. Shakespeare has him as a deformed hunchback. We know he wasn't that. Scoliosis, yes, is not the same thing at all. Withered arm, says Shakespeare. No, there's no evidence of that on the skeleton. So, if this is carried forward into general public concept of Richard III, I think we might be making a, a, at least a few more steps forward. Um, talking about some of the debates that have taken place, what's your view on the debate about where Richard would have wanted to be buried? Uh, This is a question, of course, that has been put to me on a number of occasions. Um, We just don't know where Richard planned to be buried, Um, but he may have wanted to go into Westminster Abbey along with his wife, Queen Anne Neville, but there is no room in the Abbey, um, not even standing room for, for anybody, and of course... Um, we always wanted from the very start that Richard would be given a proper monument. Then, of course, there's Windsor. Uh, we think he might well have been expecting to go or wanting to go to Windsor because, uh, at the time that he was he, he was was living and was killed, he actually had Henry the Sixth moved into St George's Chapel, but he left a space. Opposite that of his brother Edward Edward the Fourth, where he may well have been thinking, that's where I am going. I, the other choice is York York Minster, uh, and Fotheringhay. Well, York Minster. We don't know, as I say, we we just don't know where Richard wanted to be be buried. Um, His will has never been found. Presumably, none of the copies, because royal wills tended to be multiple copies, none of them have turned up, which makes you wonder whether somebody in the uh, succeeding reign or two actually found them and disposed of them. It's quite possible. Fotheringhay does contain the family mausoleum. It's where Richard and and Edward had their parents moved to, or I should say um, their father moved to, because their mother was still alive when both of them had died. Um, But uh, really the village, I love the village, I love the church, but it doesn't have the infrastructure to take a royal burial um, and all the um, public... If events that will follow it's a small village, it's a large church but still probably not big enough to take the monument of a king so Leicester is fine especially as it's no more than following archaeological practice which is rebury bones in the nearest consecrated ground to where you found them and if you've been anywhere near Leicester Cathedral and Leicester Visitor center where the gravesite is, you'll know that it's a hundred yards or less. So, you know, you couldn't get much closer. Now, I, there's been a lot of controversy. The society said right at the start that we would work with whoever. When the whole business went to court, we continued to stay impartial. And once the announcement was made that it would be Leicester, I've been quite happy to work with the people in the cathedral there. But say, had it gone to York, I would have worked with them just as well.
4: Touching on another debate that's been going on, I mean, has the debate about the identity of the the bones been good, you know, for, or has it been unhelpful?
2: Well, I'm not entirely sure that there's been that much debate. Now, I know there is uh, a certain professor out there who is quite happy to declare that the remains are not Richard III but some other plantagenet I I can understand where he might be coming from but this is the only debate that I'm significantly aware of and my answer to that would be that uh, you know contemporary records say that Following the Battle of Bosworth, Richard was taken into Leicester. He was given over to, eventually given over to the monks at the Greyfriars, and they buried him in the choir of their church. Now, three years ago, digging in the area that is now known to have been the choir of the Greyfriars church, they found a skeleton with dreadful head wounds consistent with those described that Richard received at the battle of bosworth now you find a skeleton with a large part of its skull badly damaged by some sharp implement he has a scoliosis he's been dumped in a wound in a in a grave that's not quite big enough for him evidence to suggest that it was all done in a hurry and it's in the site which is recorded as the place where the remains of the king were put that is circumstantial evidence, but it's very strong circumstantial evidence. Then I was present at that press conference back in February 2012 when Dr. Thury King of, Un- of the University of Leicester put up some of the DNA traces that she had uh, produced using the the, um, the bones and Mike Ibsen, the... Uh, the donor that had been found by John Ashton Hill of the Society, and the other DNA donor who then was anonymous, and if Jerry had put the three traces, one on top of each other, the match would have been phenomenal. You only had to hear the collective gasp of all the media when she put up her slide, the, to know that that was Richard. And I'm I am quite sure that next week we will be burying Richard III. So, away from
4: all these debates, what's the most important thing that people take away from the saga of the past two years?
2: Well, I would like to think, I go back to the thing that I've said to you before last time and again today. Perhaps people will start to think that, well, yes, we were taught by, you know, we were taught our Shakespeare that Richard was a monster. Yet, the evidence as produced by finding him shows that some of the facts that Shakespeare uses, the hunchback, the withered arm, um, just don't tie up. Let's have a look and see whether there's anything else. I Shakespeare uses all sorts of things which just do not fit the known history. I, one of my favorites, as I've mentioned before, to people is that in the play Henry the VI, Part Two, Shakespeare has Richard of Gloucester killing the Duke of Somerset at the First Battle of St. Albans. Well, at the time of the First Battle of St. Albans, Richard was not only not Duke of Gloucester, he was not yet three years old. Now, I think you'll find that that is an extremely prodigious youth. if he actually was there and killed the Duke of Somerset. No, it, Shakespeare is great drama. It's not history. And if we can get it across to people, I, as I say, the evidence is there that some of the things he says about Richard clearly don't fit the facts. Perhaps people will start to think, oh, perhaps some of the other things that are said about Richard III don't tie in either and that they will start to think around, read around and perhaps investigate for themselves. I hope so. So what's been the biggest surprise for you over the past two years? I think one of the things that came as a great surprise was to discover that the, the scoliosis. I, we've been talking for years and saying that uh, no, Richard had a straight back. There were you know, account, no accounts of him as being hunchbacked or anything like that. And then all of a sudden, you find that he does have a slight curvature of the spine. No, By no means is it a hunchback, and I would not use that term lightly. Um, it is a scoliosis, a condition, not a deformity. Um, so that's one of the things. I suppose the thing that I found particularly exciting goes right back to uh, August, September um 2012 when uh, the remains were found and Philippa rang me one night and said are you sitting down? Yes. Are you sure you're sitting down? Yes dear what are you going to tell me? Well we found him and I you know this was unbelievable because of course everybody had been saying including myself well she's never going to find him so uh, but to, you know, on the first day bones were found and within a few weeks, they were proven to be the king. It's amazing. I mean, yes, it all requires a certain amount of luck, but at the same time, you have to admit, it's really quite special. I Even if you're not Richard the Third minded, it has to be something to think that out there, somebody has found the remains of a king, and that next week, we're going to bury him. Properly, with dignity, with honour, solemnity, with all the rights that he didn't get in 1485. I think this is very special, and I know a lot of other people do too. Not just Ricardians, but people who appreciate their history, shall we say that.
4: Do you think there's any call now for maybe investigating the sites of other people's bones?
2: Oh well, yes, of course. You know, they're, they're, um, no. Well, nobody's ever going to stop that anyway. Um, are you thinking of any particular bones? Some little, bu- little bones that are in Westminster Abbey, for instance. Well, perhaps now you mention it, maybe yes. <laughs> um, well, yes, of course, it would be interesting to uh, compare these bones now because we have known Plantagenet DNA that can be used Um but of course there is also a, a slight problem there in that the maternal DNA that is what has been used in confirming Richard would not come from the Plantagenet line, would come from Elizabeth Woodville but as I've said to people many times in the past okay, you look at the bones, you test them you check and they turn out that they are bones uh of two boys of late uh, childhood, early pu- puberty, um, and that they uh, lived around, uh, you know, fourteen sixty to fourteen eighty, something like that. Yes. Uh, oh, and then you know, perhaps if you can even do the suitable testing, and you prove that they very probably were the sons of Edward the Fourth still doesn't prove who killed them. I am one of those people who are not entirely sure what the answer is. I certainly don't think that Richard had them killed, and I have my doubts as to whether Henry the Seventh did, but there are plenty of other people in the frame who could have been responsible. So uh, analysis of the bones in the Abbey is not going to give us the answer to that one.
4: Do you find it surprising that these boys, these princes in the tower, still have such a pull on people's imagination?
2: Oh, you know, it's not at all uh, unsurprising, you know. Oh, dear, the wretched monster who killed those dear little children. Excuse me. Edward V was 13 years old. He was old enough by... Law to look after his own affairs, maybe not to rule the kingdom, but he was certainly of an age where, had he been um, of a lower rank, he would have been in charge of his own affairs. I.e. Shakespeare has them as these tender babes. Uh, excuse me, I think twelve and 10, uh, twelve, thirteen, nine, ten. They're not exactly babes, um, but no, it, I, sensibilities today. Are just the same in the, as they were in those days. You do not go around killing children and getting away with it. But I don't, as I say, as I've said, I don't think Richard was responsible. If they died, if Richard had had them killed, uh, he would have displayed the bodies uh, so that there would be no comeback of anybody saying uh, Edward V is still alive. He would have come up with some story to the effect that the boys had died of a fever which was quite common at the, at the time. Um, but he didn't. I, who's to say that they weren't smuggled out of the tower and sent to another household, possibly to Auntie Margaret, Margaret of York, Margaret of Burgundy in Burgundy? I don't know. These, you know, there is, There's probably as many theories and conjectures out there as there are historians and others like myself.
4: But away from all this, uh, the 26th of March is very much about Richard, obviously. Where will you be?
2: Where will I be? I will be in the cathedral. That's going to be pretty exciting, I would have thought. I think so, too. Um, One of the royals who will be there uh, representing the royal family will, of course, be the Duke of Gloucester. And he is patron of our society, so uh, I would certainly want to be there to... uh, uh be part of his uh, arrangements and certainly we will see him during the uh during the week um can i add that the society is uh, marking the uh, reinterment on that day in the evening by a performance of a special work that was written 20 years ago the middleham requiem Mayer, written by Jeff Davidson. It's a work for a small choir, a small orchestra, s- soloists, and it tells the life of Richard um, from his late teens to he- his death, uses a mixture of the Latin mass and contemporary accounts. And it, we think it's going to be, make a rather poignant end, marking the fact that that is the day when Richard and his remains will be reburied. But the Duke of Gloucester, our patron, will be with us, as will a number of other special guests, including the Lord Lieutenant of Leicestershire and the Bishop of Leicester.
4: What's the next step for Richard III and
2: the study of his, his story? Uh, well, as I've tried to suggest, that the, the work will go on. Um, we need to get to more depth about his laws, his general the the political situation of his lifetime the 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 work that Richard was doing uh, for the common people he was a great lawgiver and he looked after the commons but uh, no we will continue we will continue research i there's still plenty of material out there um that needs publicizing and publishing, and we will continue with all of that i just because we found the king, just because he's been reburied, we're not done. We still will be working to rehabilitate his reputation.
3: That was Dr Phil Stone, Chairman of the Richard III Society. Now, if you'd like to know more about Richard, then you may well be interested in a special edition of the magazine about the king that is currently on sale. You can purchase the Richard III story in WH Smith in the UK, or else you can order it directly from us from anywhere in the world. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash Richard to get hold of your copy. Meanwhile, our March issue is also currently on sale. In this month's magazine, we explore life in Roman Britain at the time of Hadrian. We discover how Henry VIII nearly had a seventh wife, and we chronicle Shakespeare's mysterious youth.
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
3: Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's now time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarlane.
6: A trio of historians has backed a campaign against the building of a road tunnel past Stonehenge. Dan Snow, Ruth Skurr and Tom Holland have united with Stonehenge Alliance to oppose the £2 billion proposal, which includes a 1.8-mile tunnel aimed at easing congestion on the nearby A303. The plan, announced by the government in December 2014, will, quote, endanger the ancient site, the historians say. Dan Snow, who is president of the Council for British Archaeology, said, Of all our many treasures on these islands, none is more internationally revered than Stonehenge. We have recently started to realise that the standing stones are just a beginning. They sit at the heart of the world's most significant and best-preserved Stone Age landscape. The government's plans endanger this unique site. English Heritage, which manages the monument, said congestion on the A303 is, quote, highly detrimental. The Guardian reports that the Department for Transport spokesman said, Stonehenge is one of Britain's greatest treasures, and it is important to note that English Heritage and National Trust support our plans. It is essential that we ensure that this site of cultural and historical significance is safeguarded as we progress with the upgrade. As with any road scheme, We will consult with interested parties before any building begins on the A303. In other news, Philippa Langley, who led the project to find Richard III's remains, has criticised the decision not to hold a state funeral for the former king. The Richard III Society member said a state funeral should be staged because Richard was a monarch. She told the Radio Times Margaret Thatcher got a state funeral and she was just a prime minister. The conservative prime minister had a ceremonial funeral with military honors, a step short of a state funeral. State funerals are usually reserved for monarchs, although one was held for Sir Winston Churchill in 1965. In fact, there is no funeral being held for Richard III, as the service at Leicester Cathedral on the 26th of March will be a reinterment. Meanwhile, a limestone head believed to date from the 11th century has been discovered hidden at the top of a Grade Two listed church tower in Norfolk. The decorative waterspout was found embedded in stonework during restoration work at St Margaret's Church, Hopton-on-Sea. The head is thought to have been part of an earlier church that was demolished in the later Middle Ages. Project director Darren Barker said it was, quote, fantastic chance finding, BBC News reports. St Margaret's Church is known as Hopton Ruin Church, Having burned down in
3: 1865. Thanks, Emma. And now back to Richard III. After speaking to Phil Stone, Matt caught up with Dr. Alexandra Buckle, a lecturer in medieval music at St. Anne's and St. Hilda's College, Oxford, who uncovered a 17th-century copy of a long-forgotten manuscript detailing a medieval reburial ceremony. Alexandra's research has informed the reburial event on the 26th of
4: March ahead of next week's ceremony. How are you feeling about the whole thing? Is it exciting?
0: Yeah, I'm really excited. Um, when I started working on this, I didn't know that the words I was transcribing were going to end up in the mouth of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And I certainly didn't know they'd be used to rebury a king.
4: So let's talk through how you got involved in this project. How, how did you first get involved?
0: Um, well, I found the manuscript when I was a doctoral student. And I remember the point when I was reading about Richard III Um, in a common room at work, actually. I was having a coffee, reading the papers, and I suddenly realised I'd got the key, the answer, as to how to rebury a king. So I contacted Leicester Cathedral and they asked me to go and brief the committee. And that went well and they invited me onto the committee. And I've been going every month ever since.
4: And this document you found, what was it?
0: So it's actually a 17th century copy of a 15th century manuscript completely forgotten. I only found reference to it in a dusty antiquarian volume. Um, And it's so exciting because it's the only known manuscript to really tell us what happened in a medieval reburial ceremony. So it details the music, the prayers said, even where the bishop should stand, and it tells us exactly how to treat the bones.
4: And these were things that we didn't know that clearly before you found this
0: right we didn't really have any idea what a medieval ceremony looked like for reburial we knew about richard III's father and we knew about the nine-day affair uh, we knew about the guests we knew about the meeting swan we knew about them um how they possessed into the church the, the the horse riding to the altar the sermons but we didn't know the actual fabric of what happens in that ceremony of reburial so it was really exciting
4: Mm. What was the thing that surprised you the most about the ceremony?
0: I think how detailed it was. Um, also, my background is in music, so I hoped there'd be music notation, and there wasn't. But actually what there was, was details of the music, which I could then go to another manuscript and source that music for the reburial right from that.
4: So it's been quite a find. Um, what do you get a sense of the atmosphere as having been like at the time?
0: Um In terms of the service, I think this was something that was very popular amongst the elites, and it started with all the kings being involved in the 1400s, then many of the first earls and dukes getting involved, and then just the occasional aspirational grocer um, towards the end of the 1400s. But it was something that the elite really wanted and also, also, I suppose, became to expect.
4: Mm. So why do you think people wanted to be reburied?
0: Uh, I think there were many reasons. This was an age of active warfare, so many people would die in battle and be buried close by wherever they fell, only for family members to move them at a later point to a place with family associations. Other reasons were political uh, status, but I think really the thing that was overwhelming in all of these cases of reburial I've looked at is a desire for the dead to be kept in in the memory of the living.
4: So it was about raising their profile again after their death.
0: Certainly, and, and often the people organising these reburial ceremonies it said something about them. They were reminding people of their eminent of, of their eminent ancestors. Um, I suppose showing the line of their family and how eminent their line was. So definitely about status um, and and commemorating ancestors.
4: Mm. Is it true that Richard III was involved in one of these organisations?
0: Richard III was involved in two reburial ceremonies. He was chief mourner at the reburial of his father, Richard, Duke of York, and that happened in 1476. Um, interestingly, that's just a year after the date of the manuscript I was working on, which dates 1475. Um, and then he actually organised the reburial of Henry VI a few years later.
4: Do we get any sense of his character from these documents at all?
0: I suppose the only thing that we can say from having looked at his involvement with these two ceremonies is that he knew what uh, happened in them and he would be familiar with the ceremony that he's going to receive, even though obviously we've had to make important changes to it to make it intelligible to a modern day audience. There's, There's enough recognisable that a medieval person attending one of these ceremonies at that time would recognise it today.
4: Mm. It's really interesting this. I mean, how have you had to change the ceremony for a modern audience? And what do you think that tells us about the differences between the two audiences?
0: Sure, we've had to make some obvious changes. We've had to add items uh, that would be expected at a national service, like the national anthem, like hymns. We've also had to dramatically trim the medieval document from a two-day affair to 50 minutes. So that was very tough, and, and many of the prayers I particularly liked had to go. Also, we've had to take out some of the prayers that were just too heavily involved in the doctrine of purgatory and didn't fit in a modern Church of England service. Um, But I think we've ended up with something that fuses the medieval and modern very well. And I think our overriding concern throughout all of this has been to give him a reburial ceremony that he didn't have. Um, So his first funeral was hasty. He was buried in a grave that was too small. He didn't even have a coffin. He was probably buried naked. So I think the ceremony he's going to have now really I suppose, to borrow the buzzword of all of this is going to mean that he is this time buried with dignity and honour.
4: Hmm. Had you been following the story up until you found the document?
0: I had been. I mean, I, I, love, I love history. Um, even though I'm a musicologist, I really often say to people I feel more like a historian. So I'm really interested in this kind of thing. Um, and I think like everyone, we nobody could have known just how much this was going to capture the public imagination um, so I was I was fascinated by it. I think what I could never have anticipated um, is that I would become involved with the committee and be going along next week.
4: It's amazing. I mean, I'm not sure how much you can tell me about this, but how much organisation and planning has there been for the ceremony next week?
0: Uh, there's been an enormous amount. I've been going um, at least every month to Leicester from London. Um, I was also on a smaller committee Um, I was on the main liturgy committee and then a smaller committee as well. So there's been a huge amount um, going on in in the organisation. And that was just one committee. There's many other committees that are also dealing with this and then also the university and the police. So I think it's an enormous affair. And and apparently the studio is going up right now and the cathedral is looking excellent. So it will be very exciting to see all the changes when I go next week.
4: It's going to be huge.
0: I think so. I think there's nearly 100 media organisations. Last time I read, there were 58. Then uh, a few days ago, that had gone up to 90-something. So I think it's going to be uh, very um, internationally covered.
4: Yeah. I mean, what do you hope the main thing that people at home take away from the ceremony?
0: I suppose I hope that they they get an idea of how reburial ceremonies were different from funerals. Uh, one of the things I was really keen to keep are two unique prayers that do not survive in any other liturgy. And they're prayers that really justify a reburial ceremony. So they talk about the bones of Ezekiel, the famous dry bones passage. And also they draw on the passage in the Bible where Joseph's bones were moved. So those have stayed and they've become quite a big feature of that service. And I think that's a nice continuity with the medieval rite.
4: You mentioned there that your words are going to be said by the archbishop. Um, What are those words? I mean, what do they convey, I suppose?
0: Sure. Well, one of the prayers that he'll say is is just that prayer linking in with Ezekiel. So really justifying a reburial ceremony, drawing on the dry bones passage. Um, other other prayers will also be taken from the reburial rite and then some will be more modern additions.
4: Hmm. I mean, this whole story has been huge. What do you think it's meant to the public?
0: I think it's, um, I suppose, one of the things that we talked about in Leicester was how to deal with someone who is so enshrined in legends um, and also how to rebury someone who has now become one of us because we don't know him. When we go to a funeral, we knew that person and we can mourn that person When people were doing medieval reburial ceremonies, they knew the person. These reburials often happened 10 to 30 years later than the funeral. So people still knew the person. They were still mourning. We can't possibly know someone who died 530 years ago. So we've had to talk about how to treat him and obviously still keep him with dignity. So one of the interesting things we spoke about in the committee is, do we call him King Richard Or do we just call him Richard in the ceremony? And we decided on Richard because that in some ways shows that we are all equal in God's eyes um, and helps us to become involved with him and also pray for other deceased people during the ceremony. So it's been very difficult to mourn someone we don't know and and to plan for service we don't know. And I think that's one of the things that has captured the imagination. Also, this amazing gab and then, of course, the scoliosis and all of the other things that have really helped um, the legend carry on to some extent.
4: Has it been hard to know what sort of atmosphere or tone to strike?
0: That was very difficult. I remember in the early weeks of our discussion, we would say because we weren't just playing this one re service, we were charged with planning the whole week of events. So the clergy would often talk about the colour of vestments they should wear. I must have looked confused at one point um, because they looked at me and said, think of what hat you would wear, Alex. <laughs> so we've, <laughs> we've really had to um, plan. And we came up with this idea of um, reveal, um, repose, uh, reburial, not not in that in in that right and reception. I suppose so. In order, uh, reception, repose, reburial or reinterment, and reveal to give the weaker a narrative. But it's been very difficult. And, and to start with we thought we would have the reinterment, quickly seal the tomb, and then have a a sort of more celebratory service. And we realised we couldn't blend a celebratory service with the sort of more mournful reinterment. So it's been very difficult also to. Give as many people as possible the chance to go and see the remains lying almost in state Um, so it was very difficult planning the week's events um, and hopefully we've (laughs) managed to blend the medieval and modern and keep as many people (laughs) as possible happy.
4: It's, it's strange. I mean, it's such a unique event in that sense, blending something from centuries ago with something that's a very modern media event, I suppose.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I think one of the ways we can blend the medieval and modern is to take items of music from the reburial ceremony. So, for example, when it asks for Psalm 150, we aren't going to have the medieval music sung. We're going to use a piece um, by a modern composer who has associations in York. Um, so... We have kept the musical items from the reburial rite, but we've drawn on modern music as well. We've got um, uh, Judith Bingham writing a modern piece of music, a special commission. So we've managed to blend that. And then we've also got obvious pieces by national icons like Elgar to keep everyone happy and to, and to I suppose, to remember that this is a, a national service. And so we need national items from our heritage.
4: How do you hope that the service will maybe change or perhaps confirm people's impressions of Richard and his place in history, I suppose?
0: Um, I think part of what the service will do is remind us all of our own mortality. And so hopefully that will um, help with that. I think what this is going to do is really be exciting for Leicester. It's going to confirm his place in Leicester. It's going to give us a chance to... I suppose mourn him, but also part of what Leicester feel they're doing on the Friday service, the day after the reinterment service, is saying hello, um, in welcoming him to Leicester. So I think it's going to move away from the judicial review that was a fight over the archaeological judicial side of things over York, over Leicester, and really reinvite him, I suppose, to be part of, of modern day history.
4: Did you have any feelings on that whole judicial? Uh, debate I suppose.
0: Yeah people used to ask me about this and I used to say I was less interested in where he's reburied but how we rebury him so it's always been well okay you know the place obviously is important but what we do and how we rebury him has always been my concern.
4: Heading back to when you first found this document did you have any idea how important or how long-lasting your involvement with it was going to be?
0: I had no idea. I mean, it was a good find. I was working on a reburial at that time and I was trying to work out why there was a 30 year gap. Uh, when I found this manuscript, I, hope it, I hoped it would help me understand that. Um, what I didn't know is that it was going to be a 17th century copy. I didn't know anything about the person who copied it. who turned out to be Humphrey Wanley, one of the most eminent librarians and copyists um, of the 1600s. And I didn't know what the manuscript was going to look like. So I've been used to working with elaborate books of hours and illuminated medieval manuscripts. I turned up and was given a rather small, physically unassuming manuscript. And as I leafed through it, trying to find the right page, I came across copies of medals and and bizarre miscellaneous. And then I stumbled on this and it was in Latin. So I knew I had to do some decoding before I could really know what the contents was. Um, as I started decoding it, then I realised I'd got something important. But it was a couple of years later before I really realised, I think, the prominence of this find when I heard about Richard III and realised this would be um, an almost blueprint for how to rebury him.
4: So how many years since you first found it?
0: I found it in 2009.
4: So it's a long time ago.
0: Yeah, I mean, it took me a long time to reconstruct the music. It took me on a very long, wild goose chase <laughs> um, from the Bodleian Library and eventually to Bangor, where I found a bishop's um, pontifical or bishop's book to reconstruct the music. So a long time transcribing and then translating from Latin to English. Um, and then, of course, two years really almost working with Leicester and cutting it down and deciding which items to keep. Um, so it's been a very long process from researching it to actually making it into a modern day service.
4: What's been the thing that surprised you the most across that whole period?
0: Um, I think really how unusual the find was. I could never have anticipated that I would find prayers that didn't exist in any other liturgy. But really, I think when I turned up to Leicester and gave them that brief and told them about this manuscript, they they looked at me and they said, we had a blank page. Now we've got an order of service. And of course, yes, we've had to do a lot of work. We've had to keep um, many of the prayers. We've also had to cut many of the prayers. I think the other thing that's really interested me is that there are still elements in that reburial service that we use in modern funerals today. So there's the Lord's Prayer and there's the famous committal earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So I think that continuity with a medieval burial service and a funeral today is, is really striking.
4: It's nice there's those parallels across centuries of time.
0: Definitely, that's a, a way I think that everyone will understand this. And now we've obviously put in orientation points as well, like hymns, um, to make the modern people um, <laughs> attending this service um, more aware of, of, of the shape of this.
4: So what's next for you? What's your next research focus?
0: Well, I'm now looking at why reburials suddenly took off in the 1400s. I'm looking at what happened before they really took off in the late 1300s. So I'm interested in heart reburials earlier on and then why they died out and these took over. And I'm really just starting to build up a very long list of many earls, many dukes, and most kings of the 1400s who got reburied. So several articles in both music and history journals, and hopefully at some point a a full reconstruction of this. Um, The Choir of New College Oxford have already sung the music for me and it was wonderful to hear it after so long. Um, So I've got quite a few avenues um, that I I want to pursue and hopefully a book on reburial ceremonies.
4: Lovely. But first next Thursday, of course, which is going to be hugely exciting, I'd have thought.
0: Excellent. And I've got to decide what hat to wear because hats, hats are recommended. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, lots of lots of things to think about. But um, it's going to be wonderful for me to see my hard labour um, really appearing in the Archbishop of Canterbury's mouth and um, to be used to be very a king.
3: That was Alexandra Buckle speaking with Matt Elton. And do keep an eye on HistoryExtra.com for updates on the events surrounding the reburial in the week that follows. Well, that's pretty much it for this week. Do join us next time when we'll be talking about immigration in both the medieval and Anglo-Saxon eras. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.